0: Going to be one point tonight, and then next week we're going to come back and put some hands and feet on a lot of what we're talking about. Tonight, the one idea, the one point is that wise dating, if you're wondering uh, what a tweet-sized definition of that would be, is wise dating is able to distinguish between the real world and the pretend world. Hopefully that'll make sense in the next few minutes. This is the word of your Father. It's able to make you alive and able to make you wise and able to grow you. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Proverbs three, five through seven Trust in me, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. And then Jesus, the wise one, the brilliant one, in Matthew 6, where he says to you, Don't be anxious, saying things or thinking things like, What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? Who am I going to date? How am I going to date? For the Gentiles, those who don't know me, they seek after these things. That's their pursuit. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these other things will be added to you. Why don't we pray and we'll get into this. Father uh, we've been saying this the past few weeks but it's it's struck us in some encouraging ways uh, that you've defined your relationship with us. You've not left us to wonder who we are to you or who you are to us. You've told us, your Father, your God, your Redeemer, we're son, we're daughter, we're friend, we're beloved. And uh, Father, we need to lean into that relationship now as we hear you say things to us that are challenging, but also good, we pray that you would uh, allow them to be good news to us, to sink to our bones. We pray above all that we would see our beloved Jesus in this word, not have some Ted talk on dating, but hear from our master, hear from our older brother, hear from our Savior. We need him. Jesus, we need you, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, if you were here a few weeks ago, I think it was three weeks ago now, uh, we stood up here and we talked for about a half hour on uh, wisdom with our friendships. And in that talk, uh, we kind of used C.S. Lewis's definition of how close friendships develop, what close friends are. He basically said, Two close friends are two people who are looking at the same thing, who are in love with the same thing. So it could be two people who are looking at Georgia football uh, or who are, you know, obsessed over uh, like Marvel movies or a person or whatever, but they're two people pursuing the same thing who eventually look at each other and say, you too? So you feel that kindred spirit that we're on the same path together. I'm not the only one. This person gets me. They can kind of finish the song that's in my heart, even when I forget the words. That's what he said a friend was. Now, he goes on after that little uh, caption in Mere Christianity where he says, if that's a friendship, then when does romance begin? When, do, when would we say dating begins or interest in each other begins? He says it's when those two people who are walking down the same road, looking at the same thing, turn and look at each other. So it's, it's friendship is this. Lewis says romance is this. And they say, well, you're pretty cool too. And the other person becomes the object of your affection. The two of you begin to adore each other, not just Georgia football, not just Marvel movies, not just whatever you're after, but you are mutually pursuing and interested in each other. Now, when that pivot happens, uh, it it precipitates this whole series of other events, which for some of us are really nerve wracking because you might not have a ton of experience and that was me when I was in your seat. Or for some of us, you kind of feel like secondhand, I know what to do when this little pivot happens and the interest develops and the curiosity bubbles up and the clock disappears and you lose track of time and you really want to be together all the time and you're always thinking about each other and your friends start to ask you, what are y'all? And you start to ask you, what are we? And maybe you start to talk with each other, what are we? And maybe you found yourself or have found yourself in the past or want to find yourself stumbling into that weird clumsy term we have for all of this, dating. And if you're a Christian, you might start wondering at that point, what does God have to say about this? Especially if you're not as experienced in that. That wasn't a piece of high school for you or earlier. You start to wonder, like, what, is, what does he have to say? That, like, what would godly dating look like? What does it mean to be a Christian in a relationship like this? And you pretty quickly hit a hiccup because you realize, oh, this doesn't seem to be in my Bible very much. Search in your search. And modern Western dating doesn't seem to be reflected pretty much anywhere that you turn. And that's because modern Western dating is modern and Western. And the Bible's ancient and Eastern. And so we're going to have a hard time finding an experience on the pages of Scripture that tracks with and maps onto what you and I experience in this pivot that we have happening from time to time. Um, so while the Bible, look, what you will find in the Bible, which might feel a little bit less familiar and a little bit less like it tracks with your experience, you'll find plenty of stories about romance. Guy meets girl, girl meets guy, they hit it off, they're interested in each other. They they get married or whatever else. Like, you'll see that. You'll see the Bible describe lots of those kind of relationships. You won't see the Bible prescribe the way that process is supposed to happen. You get the difference? The Bible shows a lot of like burgeoning, blossoming relationships, but it doesn't say this is the way it has to be in every generation, every culture. Like, you're not supposed to look at David and Bathsheba and look like, oh, boy meets girl, and they hit it off. That's a prescription of how we should do it, too. That's the danger of lifting one thing out of the Bible, out of context, and saying, look, it's right here in the Bible. This is how we're supposed to do it for all time. That's turning a description into a prescription. Uh, You should know, Christians are experts at turning descriptions into prescriptions. You might have been raised in a church or a family where it was like, courtship is the way to go, Everything's got to be chaperoned. Everything's got to be checked off and approved by or attended by mom and dad, or some kind of other weird form of Christian dating. Because maybe they're trying to lift a particular cultural uh, manifestation of dating and romance, and they're applying it across all time. They're turning a description into a prescription. So, look, the Bible's not going to give you and I a formula of of dating. But your Father does love you, and we, we, we should know by now, hopefully you're seeing by now, he's, de- he's a detail-oriented God. And boy, is He realistic and alert to what life is actually like for us. And as of yet, we haven't surprised Him with experiences of ours that He didn't anticipate and prepare us for. And so He, he has a lot of wisdom here, and He's generous, and He loves to share it. And so we just need to um, adapt ourselves a little bit on the front end. Uh, Instead of having an attitude of where's the formula, where's the principle, where's the book, where's the person I can sit down with and learn it all. And by the way, I tried to find all of that. I scoured the ends of the internet, my first relationship, trying to find the formula. And I discovered if I did hit all the corners of the internet, I never found it. But what he will show, what he will ask you to do is to metabolize and internalize and be renewed in your mind and your heart by his word. And to begin to take all these different pieces and apply them to this area in a way that turns the lights back on so that we can begin to discern real life from pretend life. So let's look at the Bible. Let's ask the question, Father, what are you showing us about wise and foolish ways to date? Uh, I kind of just said it that I think at least we see this, and particularly in Proverbs 9, which I'll read to you in just a second. It's not in your sheet. We already talked about it a few weeks ago. But at a minimum, we can start by saying that wise dating is dating with the lights turned on. It's dating uh, in a way that can distinguish real world from Disney, fact from fiction, fantasy from reality. Do you remember a few weeks ago, if you were here, Proverbs 9? Uh, I think it was the first week that we dipped our toes into Proverbs. And, and Solomon was describing the the difference in Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, remember? And we were looking at that, and uh, the scary thing about what wisdom in, in the normal everyday events of our lives and foolishness is, they both say the same thing, right? They were both preparing this big feast at their home, this big party, and they were both going out into the middle of Times Square at the MLC at Tate during a class change, and they were saying, Come, I can help you. Do you need help? Do you need wisdom? Do you need to know how the world really works? I'll show you. Wisdom says that, foolishness says that. Both invite you into their house. And as we compared and contrasted those, we saw that uh, folly or foolishness, there's a trend to it. There's a characteristic to it that you can spot it. Foolishness always is looking for the shortcut, always the path of least resistance. Financially, it's looking for that. Let's uh, cook the books a little bit, let's steal. Relationally, it's looking for that. Uh, how could I, I skip in line to friendship and, or, or romantic relationship or sexuality and not have to wait for something to grow but just go pick it off the tree with no work? It's always looking for the shortcut, it's looking for easy street, it's stealing fruit instead of cultivating fruit. It's, it's content with the counterfeit. It's content with the delusion. It does not insist on the real thing. So in scripture, the fool is always the one who can't tell real world away from the fake world. They lack discernment or an eye for reality, Um, and it gets dangerous. And so uh, Anna and I, the first couple of years when we were married, uh, we would go down to Statesboro where she's from for Christmas, and her family's massive, so there'd be like 25 of us all in the house over Christmas break. And at the time, we didn't have kids, so we didn't really know the way that worked, like parenting and everything. But um, I, I was in the living room one night, and I heard some of our younger nieces. They were probably five or six at the time, one in particular, Loxley. And they were playing house, as they often played. And they were assigning roles. You're the daddy, and you're the little baby, and you're the doggy. And Loxley said, and I'm the mommy. I was like, oh, isn't this cute? And a few minutes later, I hear the clicking sound that's on a gas oven top, you know, that lights the gas. Click, 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 click. And I'm like waiting to hear my mother-in-law like rattle some pans right over there. And then um, Loxley says, mommy's almost done making the soup. And there's probably been about a minute between the clicking sound and this moment. And so I get up out of my chair and I run into the kitchen and I was like, Loxley, that's a real stove. We got to turn this off. Y'all got to go play in that room. No more mommies and daddies in the kitchen. Other story. When I was a kid, I don't even remember how old I was. It was probably an embarrassingly uh, high age, like 11 or 12. I was caught directing traffic in the street in front of my house, the intersection. (laughs) So my mom, one Christmas, made me a police uniform for for my big present. That's what I asked for. I had like a holster and a gun, or a fake gun, and uh, white gloves and a whistle. And Mr. Ellison, who lived down the street, came home from work and called my parents and said Ben just pulled me over for running the stop sign but the reason I'm calling you is to tell you he's still in the middle of the road. (laughs) (laughs) So my mom and dad had to do with me what I had to do with Loxley which was help a child discern what for a child is a really blurry line between pretend and real. I needed an adult, Loxley needed an adult to clarify what for them From their vantage point, they couldn't see the distinction between pretend and real. It was very real to Locke, it was very real to me, but not to the others there, and there was a lot on the line. There's a lot on the line. Uh, You don't need me to tell you there's more on the line than, you know, uh, the stovetop situation or me being in the street directing traffic. When you get to this age in life, and your heart your emotions Your friend group is on the line with dating, too, right? You feel these threats. You feel the shakiness of it all. And uh, it's a scary prospect if we're establishing the point that we are people who have trouble distinguishing pretend from real world. So so we've kind of established the fact that foolishness, simple-mindedness, naivety as God defines it is not being able to tell the difference in those two things. So what does he tell us? If we need an adult to sit us down and clarify what's pretend, what's real, where do you tend to get confused, where do we need to recalibrate, what would God tell us about relationships to begin with? Well, really this way, and I'm zooming way out of the entire Bible, if you look at the whole track of Scripture from beginning to end, there's three categories, three dynamics that God has designed and built and created for men and women. The first is marriage, and that's obvious, right? husband and wife, and the Bible talks a ton about it, right? And then there's family, obviously, mother, father, brother, sister, all those relationships, and the Bible talks a lot about family, this second dynamic of guy-girl relationships, of human relationships. And then there's the third one, which talks about in different terms, friendship, neighbor, whatever. The Bible talks a lot about that, love your neighbor, a whole Proverbs where we barely, barely scratched the surface about what the Bible says about friendship and wise friendship, wise neighborly relationships. Now here's the thing, the nature of each of those relationships, marriage, family, and friendship, determines the behavior that fits that relationship. There are certain behaviors and roles and responsibilities that are appropriate to marriage that aren't appropriate in a father-daughter relationship or a a mother-daughter relationship. There's things that are appropriate to a friendship that aren't appropriate to a family relationship. The nature of the relationship determines the behavior that fits that relationship. And when those behaviors kind of swap categories, chaos or awkwardness or hurt results. Here's a few examples, some kind of weird, some kind of comical. Uh, if I kiss Anna, my wife, good night, on the lips, it's healthy and good. If I kiss my neighbor on the lips and say goodnight, it's a felony. <laughs> if I kiss my mother on the lips and say goodnight, it's super weird. <laughs> Jeremiah got a taste of this last week. If I call Anna, <laughs> not that, if I call... It almost got there. If I call Anna, babe, good. If I call my male intern when he pokes his head in my office, hey, babe, bad. The, the depth of disgust that was on his face and the vomit that came out really hurt my feelings. But I just got off the phone with her. I was distracted by something. I was looking at him like, hey, babe. And he's like, oh. <laughs> behaviors to a certain relationship don't hop categories very well. Calling him that, treating people those ways doesn't fit the nature of other relationships. So the nature of relationship determines the behaviors that are appropriate to that relationship. Here's where things get more complicated with dating in our particular moment. Many of us, I'd say me, for the vast majority of my life, too, have accidentally, unwittingly, I think, no one's intentionally doing this, we've unwittingly elevated dating into a fourth category. So now in our minds, like in our subconscious, we're almost thinking, okay, I'm with you with marriage, I'm with you with family, I'm with you with friends, but then dating is like number two right under marriage. It's marriage, dating, family, friendship, and because the Bible doesn't really spot, talk about this newly created category There's a void and where there's a void it will be filled and who do you think fills the, the the void of what behaviors? And attitudes and expectations and assumptions are appropriate to this newly created category. Who do you think fills that void? Lots of stuff. I mean I do you do culture does Disney movies you grew up watching as a little boy or a girl do the music we listen to does All of these things fill the void um, now, look, what I'm, what I'm pushing against isn't dating. It's not the activity of dating. But what I'm pushing against and what I think Scripture pushes against is elevating dating to this fourth divine category of legitimate relationship. I, I'm going I'm to suggest to you that dating belongs categorized under one of those other three categories, not as its own standalone there. Uh, There's a book that came out a few years ago. I mentioned it a few weeks ago. It was on the book table. Maybe we should get more. It's called Sex, Dating, and Marriage. In it, the authors say this. um, Unlike previous generations, which understood the term dating to refer to something a guy and a girl did, the modern concept of dating refers to something or someone they are. And in doing so, we've created, apart from Scripture, our own category of male-female relationships. And so we're also forced to invent what behaviors fit this newly invented category. But inventing our own moral guidelines has never gone well for humanity. There's the obvious takeaway. Ernst Becker is a cultural anthropologist. He's a guy who studies human relationships throughout history and generations, and he adds a perspective on this that shows you why this is so problematic. He says, uh, never before in history, Has there been a society filled with people so idealistic in what they're seeking in a spouse or a dating partner? We live in an age of apocalyptic romance. We've removed God and his design for marriage and replaced him with unbearable expectations for transcendent relationships. And we've put divine hopes in romance. Remember a few weeks ago we we were talking about we have the same problem with friendships. We we've put divine expectations on mortal friendships, right? We said the emptier we are of the divine friendship of Jesus in our lives, who's a, who's a, who's a present and anticipating and alert and an awesome friend, the emptier we are of his present friendship, the more I'm gonna ask you to fill his role and be a divine friend to me and I'll have supernatural, crushing, overwhelming, transcendent expectations of what I want you to do for me, what I need you to do for me. We do the same with boyfriends and girlfriends and people that we're interested in We have unbearably idealistic expectations for these romantic relationships. And that's the story that many of us live in. It's the story that we're caught up in. And we didn't ask to be caught up in it again since we were little boys and girls. We got swept up in this apocalyptic romantic story. And because there's a huge connection between what you think dating is and how you date, we behave accordingly. Now, I want to cover my flank because I bet there's some of you in here who are like, I already knew all this stuff. I don't look at dating that way. I don't overinflate it with this huge importance and try to make it this fourth divine category of of guy-girl relationships. You don't see dating as some new category. You see it as a subset of one of those marriage, family, or friendship. But that begs the question, if you had three manila folders, each with that label on it, which folder would you stick dating under? which one would you open up and put it in? Again, vast majority of my life, I'd easily gut reaction say, well, of course dating goes in the marriage folder. It's supposed to lead to that, right? It's supposed to get you clarity about, do I want to marry this person? Of course, that's where this piece of paper gets filed away, is in the marriage folder. But the result of that is almost the same as what we were talking about a second ago. It's still a pseudo marriage. We we look at dating as pseudo marriage. We're kind of like a mini-marriage. And again, are you getting the theme? Because we behave according to the nature of the relationship we think we're in, guess what? Doesn't matter whether you see it as a fourth category or whether you see it as kind of a subset of marriage. In our dating relationships, we naturally just start acting married or expecting married things of each other or having marriage assumptions. For example, what am I talking about? Have you ever struggled with a sense of just deep jealousy if you've been in a relationship? Who's she talking to? Why is she talking to someone at that party? Um, How did he look at her? There's a sense of possessiveness, like she's mine. Why is she talking to him or he's mine? Why is he looking at her that way? Uh, But but possessiveness, possession, belonging to another human being is a province of marriage. That's a characteristic of the marriage relationship. Husband and wife say to each other, "Uh, I'm yours and you're mine. That's not a province of friendship. That's inappropriate if you feel that about a friend, right? I mean, I know we do, but your friend would be right to say, why do you get so jealous about me having other friends? So jealousy and possessiveness are one of the ways that we see marriage stuff popping into these pseudo marriages. Um, I guess an expectation of just total access and time. This is the Friday night conflict. Uh, you didn't talk about your plans, it's like a Wednesday or Thursday, you're heading into the weekend, and you didn't consult, you had other plans, and the other person is just crushed or has their feelings hurt and wonders whether you're really in the relationship because they had an assumption that your free time is theirs, or that y'all should always be spending that time together, and they're really hurt if that doesn't happen. Uh, Expectation of time and access, it's one thing for Uh, for Anna or for me to expect Anna to be home on the weekends or Anna to expect me to count on me being around on the weekends, it's another for a roommate or a friend. Does it make sense why physical intimacy is such a struggle? As we were talking about two weeks ago, such a struggle when we're we're accidentally kind of living dating relationships that are pseudo-marriages? Remember the nature of the relationship you think you're in determines the behavior, the way that you live it. When we think we're kind of mini-married, we do mini-marriage stuff. And so we automatically, it's like the day after we get a little bit of clarity about what we are to each other, now we're dating or we're we're something more, almost automatically deep down, it's like we feel like we have a right to each other's bodies, a right to do things together, to touch parts of our bodies that we didn't have the day before and you certainly don't have with your friends. Do you see what I'm talking about? When we get the nature of the relationship we're living in wrong, all the other stuff just comes out of that. And perhaps biggest of all, we expect security. When we think of dating as kind of a mini marriage, security, commitment, stability is a characteristic of covenantal committed marriage, not dating. This is what, uh, I felt this every second of the two and a half years that Anna and I dated and Anna did too just so deeply because when you're dating it's like the door is always cracked open and there's an exit sign above it and everybody sees it it's almost like the exit sign is flashing and maybe you're afraid to have arguments because you're wondering i don't want to nudge him or her towards that exit maybe there's other ways you respond to the inherent insecurity of dating to try to lock the relationship down and commit it maybe you said i love you on you know, month two, and you kind of don't know if you should have said that or not. You're trying to secure an inherently insecure relationship. Maybe you found yourself giving way more of your body, way more of your intimacy than you ever imagined in the relationship, and the reason why is not because you were in the mood that night or you're a particularly physical person. You were trying to keep them hooked, trying to keep them in the relationship. It wasn't about attraction in that particular moment for you. It was about insecurity. What can I do to close that exit door. Again, security is a a characteristic of marriage, but we try to make it a characteristic of dating. And we get confused by all these things and we get hurt by a lot of these things too. And we have this experience, all of us, that what dating feels like and what dating is are two very different things. Dating feels know, perfectly intimate. Dating feels secure, secure, but they're not, and we know it. Matt Howell is a friend of mine, um, a former RUF campus minister up at UT, and uh, just great with a lot of this stuff, and he said, dating is making an exclusive commitment that by definition is not exclusive and not a commitment. And if that's confusing to you, he says, that's because it is confusing. And here's where things get even harder. The way that you and I react to this confusion, the react to this insecurity, react to these unmet expectations, unleashes a whole nother layer of problems, right? Me and you and all of us, you're not unique if you're feeling this. That's where the slide happens when we can't tell the difference in the real world that God has made and that you and I are living in, inescapably in the pretend world that we've been made to believe just over the years is the world that we live in. And we need God, like I said earlier, to come like my parents, like me with Loxley and help us see the blurry line and delineate what's real and what's not, what's this supposed to be like and what it's not. Because the older we get, the more is on the line. God speaks to us and sets us straight and puts us back on the right path. This is why he tells us things like what's on your page. Trust in me with all your heart. Don't lean on your understanding. Don't lean on Disney. Don't lean on the songs. Don't lean on the waters you've been swimming in. Train your ear to my voice. That's really the question he's asking you in this whole entire book is, are you listening? Are you listening? I'm talking. Open your ear. Learn to catch my voice. Learn to, learn to hear that octave. That I'm speaking to you about these very things. In all your ways, look to me, lift up your chin, have your eyes on me, your ears tuned to me, and I'll make your, stri- your paths straight." That's what he's calling to us. And so if you ask that and you say, okay, Ben, get specific. Don't just tell me that God gives us wisdom in this area. Give me the wisdom that he gives us in this area. What does he say about it? What folder does he put dating in? I don't think he has a problem with modern dating. I think he has a problem with what we do with modern dating. I think he's entirely content and happy to say, uh, if you want to date wisely, that sheet, this thing, this phenomenon that has been around about 100 years in America, put that sheet in the friendship folder. And then a lot of things um, immediately fit. And all of the unnecessary hurt and carnage that we experience starts to dissipate a little bit more. It's not that it gets easier. It's just that the unnecessary damage that gets done living out these pseudo-marriages, begins to dissipate. So God categorizes dating as a kind of friendship, an intentional friendship, a caring friendship, a friendship where there's a curiosity in a guy and a girl of, is there something more here? It's like uh, with most friends, if you kind of use the metaphor of a house, most friends, you kind of let them on the front porch, and they know a little bit about you, and they get to see a little bit of you, And same with you and other people. Your closer friends, you're like, uh, hey, you should come over. Like, come on in, sit down. Your best friends get to go into the kitchen. That's like, that's where life happens. That's where you really get into it. And a dating relationship that's kind of under that category of friendship is one of two friends that are saying, I'm curious if there's something more here. And they both think that, and they want to go on the adventure together to explore that friendship. Not to try and hop categories, but to explore that friendship and see what's there. It's two close friends trying to figure out if there's a future, if there's a blossoming love between them, an affection, an attraction between them. And the behaviors of friendship fits it. And so instead of possessiveness and jealousy, there's a sense of of open handedness with each other. I'm just going to have to refer you to a couple of weeks ago when we talked about friendship, because you didn't know this at the time. Everything we talked about then was actually describing what I'm talking about now. An intentional, thoughtful relationship between a guy and a girl of a friendship that's exploring more and more terrain together, that's getting to know each other more and more, that's getting to know what God is doing in the other more and more, that's helping the other more and more, that's lifting burdens off the other more and more. That's getting to know each other's friend trip, friend groups, more and more. Friends, in reality, dating is not nearly as committed and exclusive as we make it out to be. And it might be healthier for us to open our hands a little bit more. I'm not talking about we're fine if, uh, you know, you're in this intentional path with your boyfriend or girlfriend for a year or two, and they're just all off flirting with everybody else. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just opening our hands a little bit more. So we're not, we don't have marriage expectations of someone who's a friend or slippage into marriage behaviors with someone who's a friend. Dating is also not sexually safe like we think it is. It's not as exclusive as we think it is. It doesn't have as stratospheric expectations that we often think that it does. Some of y'all are here. You didn't know what we were talking about tonight and Boyfriend and girlfriend is sitting right next to you and you're like, ooh, this is an interesting night to be here. And maybe this isn't sounding like great news to you, but let's say something that's hard but also beautiful. Yeah, dating is inherently insecure. But just like everything insecure in life, what it can do is either cause you to try to double down in the really shaky thing that you're standing on and to try to just make it stable, or it can send you to the only source of security there is. Jesus says, don't build your house, don't build your life on an unstable foundation, on sand. When the rains come, when the winds blow, it will fall and great will be its fall. He's saying you can't build your life on an insecure foundation. But he doesn't just tell you that and leave. Here's some building tips. Don't do this. He offers himself to you even now as that secure rock. He says, you feel insecure, you feel shaky, you feel like every day you don't know where this is gonna go next, how this is gonna play out, what's she gonna want next week, what's he gonna want next week? Is this gonna end in marriage? Is it gonna end in heartbreak? Where's it going? He offers you to come to him as safe harbor and as an anchor and as a rock and saying, I know the insecurity you're feeling right now, I know it confuses you, I know it scares you. He says, come, stand on me, I don't shake, I don't change every day, I'm, I'm not whimsical. I'm not for you today and I'm second guessing you tomorrow, but I'm here. And he goes back and he tells you, you must date by faith. There's no formula. There's no way to date by sight. There's no way to date by great preparation. There's no way to date by control and micromanaging where you've eliminated all of the uncertainties. But he says, I'll go with you down this path, this friendship. He says, I'll teach you as we go, as we walk down this path together. Um, now, I should say, as we wrap this up to some of you, the reason you don't date is because of the apocalyptic romance thing. I didn't date. Uh, I thought about it. I freaked myself out about it. I made little weak, cowardly attempts at it and then backed off. I was terrified of all of the weight on modern dating, the expectations, the not, I don't know what to do yet. I mean, Ann and I would be, should we go out to coffee? And I'm thinking about, can I marry her? And you're like, I mean, a lot of y'all do too. And I should have been thinking, do I want to get coffee with this girl, not do I want to marry this girl? Do I, want to, do I want to explore this friendship with Anna instead of like imagining 40 years down the line? Some of you, maybe what we've been saying tonight didn't resonate with you a lot because you're, you're not even engaged in this sphere, and that's okay, but if the reason you're not engaged is because you're terrified of a pseudo-marriage, do you feel the burden lifting? It's not a pseudo-marriage, it's a friendship. You know how to do that. You have tons of those. With guys and with girls. Dating is a relationship where you just acknowledge to the other. "Um, I'm interested in you. Let's walk down this road together and see what's there. Why did I put a genealogy in a sermon about dating? Why in the world is that part of the end here? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Salman the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Jesse the father of King David, King David the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, and on and on and on, and Jacob was the father, and Joseph the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. What in the world does that have to do with what we've been talking about? how in the world does anything we've been talking about have to do with Jesus? Um, We said this a year ago last week when we were going through the book of Ruth on Zoom post-lockdown. We were looking at redemptive romance and the story of Ruth and Boaz. Why I put this in there is God is literally redeeming the world through the chaotic and circuitous and uncertain romantic lives of human beings like you and me who can't figure it out, who are trying to figure it out, who are trying to adjust course midstream, who've made a lot of mistakes, who might have a lot of regret, who have a lot of fear. We don't have time to get into the life stories of every name I just read you, but you can go read your Bible and see every single one of them. And God is striking a perfect straight blow through all these crooked sticks and their weird romantic lives and their dating experiences with others. Friends, at the end of the day, your greatest hope for your future uh, isn't that you're going to master the art of friendship or dating and find the right one and work out all the kinks. It's not your hope. Your hope is Jesus Christ, who oversees every little detail, every decision of your life. He's the only rock you'll ever stand on. Everything else in life, you're going to feel like an earthquake's coming on. Let that earthquake send you back to the rock. Let it send you back to him. He receives you. Seek him first, and all these other things will take care of themselves, because he'll take care of them, for you'll make your paths straight. Let's pray to him as we close. Lord Jesus, we need your help. We need your help in these ways. Uh, This genealogy is really encouraging to me, because throughout human history over millennia, You have been bringing about your perfect ends. They look so simple to us. They look so clean, but they were so messy. These people were so uncertain. These people cried out to you for help, and you were there, and you helped them. And it brought us Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior. So Jesus, be the rock beneath our feet, no matter where we are, afraid to date, afraid because we're dating, lost in the mix. Let us run back to you, the rock beneath our feet. We ask this in your name.